0: One of our members, Will Stevenson, wants to go to get his undergrad in English from UNA. Over the course of his studies, young William will read people like William Shakespeare. He'll read poets like Byron. He may even read stuff like Beowulf, which is originally written in the language of Anglo-Saxon, which is a language that English comes downstream from. But long before studying the depths of the heights of the prose of the English language, Will learned about something called foreshadowing. Maybe he learned about it in eighth grade if he was at a good school. If he went to a Decatur city school, maybe he learned about it in the ninth grade. But he definitely learned about foreshadowing. Foreshadowing is a term that describes a tool in writing wherein an author gives a hint Or hints about what is going to happen later in the story a fantastic yet simple example of foreshadowing comes from the movie Toy Story one of America's greatest pieces of cinema (laughs) and in the story of Toy Story Buzz Lightyear lands in Andy's room crash lands hops out of his box and immediately he's greeted by Woody Woody is another toy he's a cowboy And as Woody goes up to Buzz Lightyear, Buzz is on the defensive. He's in a strange land. It's a strange world. He doesn't know if he can take off his astronaut's helmet. There may not be enough oxygen to sustain him. But as Woody approaches him, he gets defensive. And he grabs for his left arm as he raises it up, pushes the button, and activates the laser. Which, because my coat is so tight, I can't really do well. But he activates his laser, pointing it right directly between Woody's eyes. Now, Buzz doesn't know that he's a toy yet. He doesn't know that his laser doesn't actually have the ability to hurt anyone. It doesn't even cause them minor eye discomfort. Later, in the same movie, Woody the cowboy doll ends up in Sid's room. Sid is a vicious young child. And the only pleasure that he derives out of toys is the pleasure of destroying them. And so when he sees Woody in his room, he grabs him and he takes him and he runs over to the place in the room where the light from the sun is coming through the window. And he lays him down in the light and he grabs his magnifying glass and he concentrates the beam of light, the heat, the laser, right in between Woody's eyes and burns a hole in the middle of his forehead. That's foreshadowing foreshadowing is not just in good movies and it's not just in the best books that we read. The best literature is rich with foreshadowing and the Bible is no different. We've been talking a lot about it. We talked about it during the baptism of Jesus. But you can think about Abraham and Isaac. You remember the story of Abraham. He didn't have a son. He was desperate for a son. God promised him a son. He finally got the son and God says, hey, I want you to go and kill your son. And so Abraham is holding the knife over his son ready to plunge it and to kill his only begotten. Well, if you know the story of the gospel, you know that that was foreshadowing the death of another begotten son, the only begotten son. And it's not just Abraham and Isaac. It's also Melchizedek foreshadowing the great priest Jesus Christ. It's David foreshadowing the great king. It's the sacrificial lamb foreshadowing Jesus Christ and his perfect, spotless righteousness as a sacrifice to God. But foreshadowing isn't just in the Old Testament either. Foreshadowing is also in our Bible. We saw a glimpse of it last week in the New Testament. We saw Jesus beginning to draw the nations to himself. He began to become, people began to come to him from further and further distances. And this week, we see the beginning of a foreshadow emerge again. The hints of what will later become known and exposed as the Great Commission. Last week we talked about the come and see aspect of the mission, right? God is holy and he calls the people to be holy and that light is supposed to draw the nations in to see the holiness of God through his people. But we said in the New Testament, now God is giving his holiness to his people through the Holy Spirit and he's sending them out to the nations. And now it's a go and tell understanding of missions. And today in Mark we are going to read about the calling of the disciples and how it foreshadows the Great Commission. So open your Bibles with me if you have them to Mark chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 13 and read through verse 20. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, And John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the names Bonargus, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, He is out of his mind. Now, if you've ever heard a sermon on the calling of the disciples, you've probably just taken, you've heard a pastor take each one of the names of the disciples and he's probably scoured his Bible to find as much information as he can find about each individual disciple and it becomes a lesson on who the disciples were. We're not going to do that this morning. So for the note takers, I'm giving you three points, three things that I want us to take away from today's text. Number one, Jesus sovereignly calls disciples. Jesus sovereignly calls disciples. Number two, Jesus gives the disciples an identity. Jesus gives the disciples an identity. And number three, Jesus gives the disciples a mission. So let's start with the first one. Jesus sovereignly calls the disciples. You should notice here, that Jesus is not interested in harnessing the masses. Last week we talked about how the crowd is most often in the book of Mark a hindrance to the work of the gospel, not something that is supporting it. Now imagine that you're Jesus, and you are trying to proclaim the good news of the gospel of God, and you want it to reach the ends of the earth. Would you not try to harness the crowd? Jesus does not try to harness the crowd. He actually avoids the crowd. But that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't interested in using men for his purposes. You see, even as Jesus evades the masses, evades groups of people, he calls other groups of people to himself. He avoids the crowd, the masses, but he calls the disciples. But you should note here that Jesus isn't interested in asking who's interested in following him. He doesn't go out to the crowd and say, All right, guys, show of hands, who wants to come with me? He doesn't go out to the mass and say, Who's interested in taking up their their cross and following me? That's not what we see here. In the text today, it says that Jesus calls them, and then it reads simply, And they came to him. What we see here is the sovereign power of God in calling. These disciples. This is what God does. He calls men to himself. And when he calls, they come. In the book of John, the gospel of John, Jesus is talking about his sheep. And he says, my sheep hear my voice. I have other sheep. And when I call them, they're going to hear my voice. And they're going to come to me. So here, Jesus speaks. He calls out to his sheep. And his sheep hear his voice. And they come to him. And they don't come to him for their own purposes. They come to to him for his purpose. This is what God does all throughout our Bibles. From Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. God calls men who are out just living their life. And he calls them and they come. Look again at verse 13 real quick. Of chapter 3. Verse 13. And he went up on the mountain. And called to him. Those whom he desired. Here's a question. Why do you think Jesus desired these men and not others? I mean, presumably there were several hundred people, maybe even thousands of people. People were coming to Jesus from over 150 miles away. There's so many people that Jesus is afraid for his life, okay? So however many that is, it's a lot. And Jesus looks out and he calls these twelve. The question that we have to ask is, why these twelve and not the others? What was it about these twelve that led Jesus to calling them? Well, like a good politician, rather than answering that question, I just want to ask another question. How much do we really know about the disciples? I mean, people have written entire books about lives of particular disciples, but I would posit that we don't really know that much about the disciples. Our knowledge of most of the, of the apostles is meager if non-existent. We know about Peter and John and Judas the most, right? We know how some of them died. And we also know, basically, what kind of work some of the men were employed in. A lot of them were fishermen. One was a tax collector. Another one may very well have been a religious terrorist, But we also know that they weren't particularly discipled, uh, uh, excuse me, particularly educated. But that's really all we know about most of these twelve disciples. What we do know about them, on the other hand, it doesn't tell us anything about why Jesus would call them. All it does is make us stop and wonder, like, why would Jesus call idiots like this? What would you look for? I mean, you're Jesus You're proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. You've got a mission. You want everyone, the whole world, all the nations, to hear your message, to repent of their sins, to trust in your name and be saved. And you're going to do it by calling 12 men to yourself. What would you look for in these 12 men? If they were going to change the world, would they be highly educated? These men certainly weren't. A good number of them were fishermen. Peter is perhaps the most prominent of all the apostles. And anybody who studied Greek knows that he's the hardest one to read in Greek because he's not very educated. His grammar and syntax is like that of someone who has a sixth grade education. These are not the most educated people in the world. Now, it's true. Paul was later called and he was highly educated. But that's not prominent in the theme of the disciples. Maybe it was something petty, like their good looks. Well, I doubt it. I mean, I could be wrong about that. Maybe they were all stunning male models with full heads of rich hair that they didn't even have to comb when they woke up in the morning because it was just so naturally good-looking. But I doubt it. Maybe it's because they were so religious. Well, that seems equally implausible. We know here that Judas later shows himself to not really be converted at all. We also know that one of the disciples was a tax collector which for a Jew was like the most despised thing in the world. It was the most irreligious job that you could have as a Jew, which would be as a tax collector. It would be as if one of you came up to me and told me that you were a a stripper or a bank robber. It's a very irreligious job for you to have. Maybe it was their political acumen. Maybe they were just so politically sharp, Jesus thought, you know what? It's complicated. We live in a strange time. You know, we're Jews, but we live under the occupation of the Romans. And the Romans are going all, out of the, all over the world. And they have to interact with people in Athens. And they have to interact with people in Damascus. And over into further deeper into Asia. Maybe they need to be like really politically astute to navigate those difficult waters as they preach the gospel. That seems unlikely. Considering that later on, Paul stands in front of a group of people and says, You murdered God. Not a very political thing to do. Additionally, if you look at some of these disciples, you see you have people from both ends of the spectrum. On the one hand, you have Simon the Zealot. And a zealot is probably connected in some way to a group of marauding religious terrorists who were dedicated to overthrowing the Roman government by killing Romans. Another translation of Iscariot is Dagger Man. And some people believe that Judas may have in fact been a part of that band. I don't know it to be true, but I know Simon the Zealot was most likely connected to a very fringe group of Jews who were dedicated to overthrowing the Roman government. But then on the other hand, you have Matthew the tax collector. And Matthew the tax collector, he's buddy-buddy with the Romans. He's doing the Romans bidding. Whatever you need, Rome, I got it. It doesn't matter about God or his law or his people. I'll do it for you. you have bo- it's like having an extreme Republican and an extreme Democrat on the same team. I don't think Jesus was looking for political acumen when he called these disciples. So why did Jesus choose these 12 men and not others? Was it because of their righteousness? I think that's laughable. I mean, we don't have a good human explanation. I don't think it was their money. I don't think it was their good looks. I don't think it was their intelligence, their political adeptness their religion, or even their faith. Maybe they just had really strong faith. Maybe not. If you look at this list, you see that it is full of doubters. People who puff their chest out and say, I'll never abandon you, Jesus. And then when things get hard, the first one to abandon Jesus. We had some guys working out at my house last week. Football players, real tough guys. One of them looked me in the eyes, beat his chest. Oh, God. Beat his chest, gently. I'll never quit, I don't quit, I'm not a quitter. I was impressed, oh wow, this is good. All right, let's see it. He hops hops on the bike, does a four minute workout, doesn't make it in a minute two, quits immediately. That's what we see here with these disciples, particularly Peter. I mean, when Jesus was resurrected, Thomas refused to believe it unless he could put his finger in Jesus' side. As soon as the shepherd is struck, the sheep scatter. It's not their faith that, he choo- that causes God to choose these men. What if you look at the example of Peter and Judas in relation to their faith? It makes an interesting case study. And it may, in fact, help us answer our original question of why these men and not others. You see, with Peter and Judas, you have two men, and both of these men denied Christ. Peter denied Christ And Judas denied Christ. And yet one of them is shut out from heaven forever and is in hell. And the other one is with God. The other one died by suicide. And the other one was a leader of the early church, authoring books of the New Testament. Why did Peter persevere and Judas not? In Luke 22, Jesus tells Peter, He tells Peter, He says, you're going to deny me. You're not going to deny me once. You're going to deny me three times. Compounding the sin of your denial. Compounding, showing it that you do not have the faith to follow me. You're not just going to deny me once. You're going to deny me three times. But then he also says this. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again strengthen your brothers what we see here is that Jesus is asking God to give Peter the faith that he needs to follow through with the mission why did Jesus pray for Peter to have faith to persevere but not Judas it's obvious that the reason why Peter persevered was because Christ asked God to give Peter the faith to persevere and he prayed on Peter's behalf. Why didn't he pray on Judas's behalf? Why did Peter not ultimately apostatize, that is, abandon Christ where Judas did? Well, I think one answer is because it was the will of Christ that Peter persevere in a way that it was not the will of Christ that Judas persevere. And this is not something that's unique to Jesus and Judas and Peter. This is all throughout your Bibles. God very much loves the world, and yet he chooses the Jews. He loves them in a special way that he did not love the rest of the nations of the earth. As you read the rest of your Bibles, you see that God chose Abraham and not Lot, Isaac not Ishmael, Jacob and not Esau. Later in the book of Romans, Paul tells the Romans that God chose Jacob and not Esau, before either one of them were born and had done either good or wrong. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, before either one of them were born. But that's another sermon for another day. Why Moses and not Pharaoh? Both were evil men apart from God's grace. Peter and Judas were both equally unrighteous, dead in sin, lacking faith before God. So why did Peter make it, and Judas didn't? None of the people that God chose to be used for his purposes were inherently more worthy to be used by God than the other. If you look at Israel, you see that they're called a stiff-necked, a hard-hearted people, four times in the first several chapters of Exodus. In Deuteronomy, God says this. Listen to these words. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess. So I'm not giving you this spiritual reward because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. There is nothing about Israel that made God set his heart upon them. There was nothing about Israel that made them lovely, that God would say, oh, I'm going to look down and I'm going to find favor with you. There was nothing about Israel that made God say, I'm going to use you to bless the nations of the earth. I'm going to bestow all of my divine blessings on you. As a matter of fact, it seems like all that Israel really deserves is wrath because they are a stiff necked, disobedient people. They are not righteous. And that's what God does. God chooses the unrighteous those who don't have enough faith, those who aren't religious, those who are dead and trapped in sin, if God didn't choose those people to save, there would be no one to be saved. If God didn't use those people to accomplish his purposes, he would not be accomplishing his purposes through people because that's all he has to choose from. Oh, all right, okay. Paul tells us that God chose the foolish things of the world. And you know what? The foolish things didn't choose themselves. Being foolish means you wouldn't have the knowledge to do that. You wouldn't have the insight to do that. He chooses the despised and the rejected. God uses the worst of all sinners. He uses Christian killers like Paul. He uses prostitutes like Rahab. He uses murderers like Moses and traitors like Matthew the tax collector. He uses cowards like Peter Doubters like Thomas, and religious terrorists like Simon the Zealot. And he uses you and me. Where were you when Christ called you? Do you think you were living a basically good life? Do you think that you in some way merited his divine calling on you? If you do, you may be more lost than you could have even imagined. There's nothing about us. There's nothing about us. I mean, look at, look at me. I, in sermons, I try not to make things about myself. That would be awkward. But I mean, just look at me. I used to sell drugs to children. And here I am. God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And he sovereignly calls people to himself. Why did God choose these men and not others? Well, ultimately, is so that he could magnify his glory in using the lowly things of this world to proclaim his fame and spread his gospel. This is what our God does. He takes the things that were filthy and disgusting and unworthy, and he makes them new, and he uses them for his own purposes. Point two. Jesus gives the disciples an identity. So this is going to be really awkward, but I'm about to talk about myself again a couple weeks ago I pointed out to you guys that my dad was here to visit you guys remember that well we took a DNA test while Caesar was here and it came out that he is in fact not my father I grew up 28 years of my life without a dad and I just kind of always assumed that as part of my identity and then for two years I thought man I do have a dad I do have a father it was hard it wasn't an easy relationship but I felt like my identity was changed. I was, I was connected to something beyond myself that affected my identity. And when I found out that he was not my father, it, it changed me. It, and so the question is now, who, who am I? Am I Sean, the son of Caesar? No, I'm not. Well, who am I? I mean if my identity was founded in being the son of Caesar my identity would crumble right now where do you find your identity as a paramedic in the army I worked around a lot of nurses and most of the nurses were all about being nurses it's a weird phenomena I don't know why maybe they learned that in nursing school but it's all about being nurses, OK? Their license plates talk about it. Their bumper stickers talk about it. Their email addresses are like nursecindy at AOL.com. If you've ever been invited into a nurse's house like I have, you might see that their refrigerator magnets talk about being nurses. The shirts they wear around the house are from nursing convic- convic- conventions. They have picture frames that are about Their blankets are about it. You know, Why not just paint, I'm a nurse, on the wall? we get it you're a nurse the same can be said of animal lovers whose front doors have a sign that reads uh, dogs roam free please put kids on a leash right like you know the people who love their dogs just a little too much whose identity is rooted in their animals in a way that's not quite normal Alabama football fans I don't want to step on anybody's toes but they seem to kind of be like that you know it's just like Alabama is life I know a man right here in the city of Decatur whose home is a registered Alabama museum because of all the Alabama football paraphernalia that he has in his house. His couch is red. His chairs are red. All the blankets are Alabama. There's pic- I mean, it's, just, it's ridiculous. Or maybe you think it's fantastic. Single moms, like my mom was, they tend to not let a moment pass without reminding people that they're single moms. And their whole identity is wrapped around that. Worst of all are perhaps the people who are so full of worldly religion that the way they live their lives screams to the world, I love my religion, without ever really saying anything about their God. Look at verse 14 with me. Verse 14 reads, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach. So that they might be with him. From here on out, the identity of the disciples is no longer rooted and grounded in anything else other than Jesus Christ. Because they are now connected to Christ. They are with Christ. Being with Christ fundamentally shapes their identity and changes it. And the same is true for you, brother and sister. Your identity is no longer your own. You've been called out of the world. You've been called to be with Christ. So in your homes, you are to be with Christ. On your job, you are to be with Christ. At school, you are to be with Christ. In your hobbies, you are to be with Christ. In public, you are to be with Christ. In private, you are to be with Christ. Your identity is bound up inextricably with Christ in such a way that your life should look like an M.C. Escher drawing, which is, those are those drawings, you remember where like three staircases and you can't see where one ends or one begins? Or where the hands are drawing each other and you don't know which hand is drawing which? That is your life. Inextricably bound up with Christ. The world should look at your life and say, I don't know where he ends or where where Christ begins. So I ask you again, where do you find your identity? Or better yet, If you were to ask a friend or an acquaintance, where would they say that you find your identity? Is it obvious to everyone that you've been called by Christ and that you belong to Christ and that you are with Christ? Last night we had some people over to our house for a barbecue um, and Blaine faithfully brought uh, a non-believer to come spend some time with us. Thank you, brother. You, You do an excellent job with that sort of thing. And while she was there, I made it a point to be speaking much of Christ. I want her to know that she is in the company of Christians who have been called by Christ to be with Christ. So when we were eating our dinner, I spoke of Christ. When I took her out and showed her the garage, we were speaking of Christ, communicating the gospel. Before she left, I invited her in to come do devotionals with our family so that she could see that this family, is not its identity is not grounded in the fact that it's a family. Our identity is grounded in Christ. When I met the Alabama football guy, it took me a fraction of a second to figure out where his identity was. I meet parents all the time whose identity is wrapped up in their children. I know men whose whole life is dedicated to keeping up the appearance of dead religion. What is your life dedicated to? Whatever your life is dedicated to, that is where you will find whether or not your identity is in Christ or something else. That's not to say that you can't have other identities. You're a son, you're a daughter, you're a husband, you're a wife, you're a sister, you're a cousin, you're an aunt, you're a teacher or a retired teacher, you're a student, you're a part-time pharmacy worker at Walmart, you're a fiance, you're black, you're Hispanic, maybe, I guess now since I don't know. You're white, you know, like, you're a member of Sixth Avenue Church of God, right? But all of those identities should be subsumed under the identity of Christ. When Christ called Matthew, it's not like he abandoned his name, Matthew. But from here on out, Matthew means nothing. Christian means everything. Whatever other identity you have is subservient to the identity of being with Jesus Christ. And I promise you, if you put your identity and anything else other than Christ, it will one day be stripped away from you. And it will crumble. And you will be broken. It was really hard for me to find out that, once again, I did not have a father. And yet I do. I really do. This is why baptism is so important. Baptism is the visible representation of your spiritual reality of your union your being with Christ so what's true of Christ in some senses is true of you has Christ been crucified in the flesh so have you has Christ been buried so have you has Christ been raised to newness of life and seated at the right hand of the father in Christ so have you Baptism isn't necessary for salvation, but it is necessary to demonstrate the obedience that flows from salvation. It's the way that we stand up and we tell the world, my identity is not my own. I no longer belong to myself or this world. I'm connected to Christ, eternally connected to Christ. When an unbeliever thinks of you, what is the first thing that they think? Athlete, business savvy, great cook. What about Christian? We call ourselves Christians because Christ should be the entirety of our identity. If you read your Bibles, you'll see that God is in the business of changing people's identities. That's what He does, that's what salvation is. And he, he expresses that even by having people change their names. The name is just a representation of the deeper, more profound reality. So he says, you know what? You were off doing your own thing. You had your own identity. You had your own life in the world. But I'm sovereignly calling you to come be with me. I will be your God and you will be my people. So now I'm giving you a new identity. Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Jacob becomes Israel. The list goes on. Simon becomes Peter. Peter. One Bible scholar, when reflecting on the question of why God changes people's names in order to reflect their identity, he responds by saying this. Why did God choose some names for some people? The Bible doesn't give us God's reasons, but perhaps it was to let them know that they were destined for a new mission in life. With that being said, let's turn to our third and final point. Jesus gives the disciples a mission. Right after Jesus calls the disciples, Mark tells his readers the reason why Jesus called them. We already talked about one of them. One of them was so that they would be with him. But look at the end of verse 14. The end of verse 14 reads, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority and cast out demons. Everyone who is called to Jesus, to be with Jesus, is also sent out by Jesus Jesus gives those whom he calls a mission and wouldn't you know it the name of the game the mission that Jesus gives his followers is the same thing that he's doing all throughout Mark we've been seeing Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God and then he's verifying it through his good works the demonstration of his power and so now as he sends these newly identified apostles out on their mission he doesn't say, all right, I've got something spectacular and new to give you to do. He says, go and preach the gospel and cast out demons. It's the same thing that Jesus was doing. What's the mission of the church? What are Christians put here on this earth to do? Now, here's where we can get a little tricky. Some, someone might say, well, then our mission is to cast out demons like the apostles were. Well, you have to take in mind that this is still before the resurrection of Christ. This is still on this side of the cross. This text is not meant to be a full-blown template for how we're supposed to do missions as Christians. But it is communicating something, namely that those who are commissioned by Christ are commissioned to do what Christ did. If your kids see you reading, one day you might see them pull out a book, sit down on the couch next to you, and start to pretend to read with the book upside down, most likely. If you do CrossFit, Amen? Your kids might one day just drop down and start doing burpees right next to you in the middle of a workout. It's really cute. If you pray, your kids might one day just close their little eyes, put their chubby little fingers together, and start talking to Jesus. It's not complicated. They just look and they copy That's one of the reasons why it's so important for us to have children in worship with us. It's one of the reasons why we don't segregate our children out. I mean, we do have care for those who are five and under, but after that, or four and under, and parents have the right to decide what they want to do there, but for the nursery, the nursery in this church will only be for children four and under because we believe that your children can still learn something in church on a Sunday morning by being with you even if they don't understand everything that I'm saying from the pulpit. Your kid's going to sit next to you, or she's going to sit next to you, and she's going to watch you sing. She's going to listen to the sound of mom praising God. Your baby boy is going to see when you close your eyes and you genuinely pray, and he's going to learn how to pray like you pray. Your child is gonna sit and watch and learn what it looks like to worship God in spirit and truth and in a spirit of reverence. Your child is learning here on a Sunday morning, even if they can't articulate the three points of the propositional truths that I'm laying out for you in a sermon. There's something about being together that is didactic in nature. That is, it communicates, it teaches, even if it doesn't do so verbally. It also teaches the kids about what church is. If we were to gather our children in for a time and then send them off somewhere else, it would teach kids that church is a place where some people come together to worship God, but other people go somewhere else and worship God differently. It would communicate to the kids that church is a place divided by age groups. Church is a place not meant for diversity. It's a place where we separate based off of age or understanding level, etc., or maybe even, and that's not, this is not assuming the motives of anyone in here, maybe church is a place where mom gets tired of her kid and drops him or her off for a couple hours every Sunday. There's something about being with Jesus that teaches the disciples what they are to do on their mission. And he commissions them, he sends them out to go to do it. Discipleship isn't just information dump. It's life observation. The disciples learned a million lessons from being with Jesus that he probably never articulated verbally, but they just learned and observed. When I was doing my internship in Washington, D.C., I was with probably one of like the smartest human beings alive who talks, 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 and he, every time he talks, I'm like, slow down. I'm trying to take notes. I promise you, I learned more just from watching him than I did from anything he ever said to me. That's the reason why so many people that Amber and I have discipled have ended up living in our home. It's not just because we love having less space and having opportunities to fight with people. It's because we understand that there's something about discipleship that can take place with people just watching the way I discipline my daughter or have a fight with my wife and then go and repent and make up with my wife. There's something about them watching me get up in the morning and do devotions or whatever it may be. There's something about being with that helps us learn how to better fulfill our mission. But back to the mission. If you give someone a job, they have to have authority to do that job. I've been saying for weeks now that this congregation, the members of this congregation, you and you and you and you and you, you have a job. And the job is to guard the who and the what of the gospel. Now, if I told you that that was your job, but I didn't give you any authority to do that, you would soon be exhausted, exasperated, and you would be discouraged from trying to continue to do your job. But I've been showing you from God's word that you do have authority to do your job. Matthew 16, Matthew 18, Matthew 28. You do have authority. The authority of Christ here with you to do Your job, primarily by protecting the membership and the discipline of the church. In the army, there was a ranking system. And whenever there wasn't like a sergeant around or someone the next rank up from you to do their job, the guy in charge would just go, well, I'll take the next ranking guy and put him in that position. You didn't make any more money and you didn't have any more authority. You still had the same sign on your chest. But you were expected to do the job of a person with more authority than you. And let me tell you, it was really hard. You would try to tell someone and act like a sergeant, but they would look and they would see your rank and they would say, you don't have the authority to do that. I'm not really going to listen to you. It was really discouraging and it was really hard. Jesus does not treat the disciples that way. He sends them out to proclaim the gospel and to perform signs to accompany the gospel proclamation. And he actually gives them authority to complete the mission. Look at verses 14 and 15. And he anointed twelve whom he named apostles. By the way, the term name in Hebrew is a very significant thing. This goes back to point one in sovereignty. Uh, Adam named the animals and named Eve. It's a term of having the superiority in the situation. Christ named the apostles. He names them apostles. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Demons. So what is the authority? Well, it's the authority of an apostle, which simply means a sent one. Later, Paul will use a similar term, that of ambassador. Both terms convey that the one who's being sent, whether they're an apostle or an ambassador, they're being sent on a mission by someone greater than themselves. Their mission is not self-representation, but rather representing the one who sent them. Both terms communicate the fact that the person who has been sent has authority, but the authority is not their own. It's the authority of the one who sent them. You guys remember the story of Naaman the leper and how he had a letter from his king and he went to the king of Israel with that letter? And the king of Israel read it and thought he was being asked to do an impossible thing and he ripped his clothes and he was heartbroken. Why is this king trying to pick a fight with me? Because he realized that Naaman was coming in the authority of someone who sent him. And so here today in the first commissioning of the apostles, Jesus sends them out with his authority, with his power, not with their own. Jesus has been preaching the gospel, performing signs and wonders all over the place thus far. But Jesus, being true God of true God, he's still fully man. He can still only be in one place at one time in the incarnation And so he sends out his disciples to be his representatives. And when he sends them out, he sends them with his authority. And all of this is foreshadowing the Great Commission. Later, Christ will die, but he will be raised. And before he ascends again into heaven, he will gather the the apostles together, and he's going to give them a commission. And he's going to say, go to the nations, take the gospel to them, Teach people the truth about me and teach them to be obedient to that truth. Again, if you read your Bibles carefully, you'll realize, although this is a foreshadow to the Great Commission, it isn't the only one. God called Abraham and he gave him a mission. And then he called Isaac and Jacob, they had a mission. Then Joseph, the mission to save his people. Then Moses, to save his people. Later, Jeremiah, and the list goes on and on and on. People are just living their lives until God sovereignly calls them, gives them a new identity, and then puts them on a mission for the glory of his name. We have been given a mission. And you are not the hero of that mission. God has commissioned Spencer and Eric and Michael and anyone else who belongs to him, but he's commissioned you through this church. The mission is for all who are disciples of Christ. But the way that that mission is carried out is through your local church. So now, let me pray and ask God that he would help us to be faithful and to stay on our mission for the glory of his name and for the good of his body. You are a kind God, Father. Father. We thank you for calling us to be with you. There's nowhere better for us to be. The world is a desolate place where the wild beasts are, but there is safety in your arms. And as we are with you, we learn about you and we form our identity in you. And I pray for any brother or sister here this morning who's struggling, who finds their identity and how much they weigh, or what they look like, or what their career choice has been, or any other fallible thing. And I pray that you would help us as a church to find our identity in your son, Jesus Christ, and that we would be faithful to that identity in carrying out the same mission that he had, that we would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. In his name we pray, amen.